Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. So um, I wanted to uh, just do a, a brief follow-up. So I put out a show called Why They Are Winning, Why We Are Losing, which was uh, a... Uh, a strong urging, I guess you could say, for people to live their values, to support this show, to create their own show, to repost videos they find important, uh, and so on. And it's interesting. It's always really interesting to see, you know, if you don't create goods for people, uh, and if you've never been an entrepreneur or whatever, uh, or even a waiter, I guess, you don't realize necessarily the degree to which you are dependent on the kindness of uh, strangers. And it is a vulnerable position to be in a position of uh, asking for something from people and so on and trying to make a good case for it. And I do find it really fascinating. It is really tragic, but it is really fascinating to see how people handle power and the degree to which people, when I ask for things over the internet, or I guess in person for that matter, it puts me in a position of, for most people, what it does is it puts me in a position of being a child and them in a position of being a parent. And it is really terrifying but enlightening to see the degree to which or the amount to which people flip into their parental alter egos when I become the child who is daring to ask for another piece of porridge. Please, sir, can I have some more? And it is amazing the degree to which reason and evidence goes out the window. Not for everyone. You know, thank you for those who did decide to uh, subscribe and, and donate. I hugely appreciate that. But it is really fascinating the degree to which parental language comes in. You know, you're arrogant, you're disrespectful, you're ungrateful, you're this kind of stuff. Uh, for those who feel that strong urge to, uh, when I am asking for something, to become abusive... It is, uh, it is interesting. It's something to look at within yourselves to say, how, how do you handle power? Um, I, I really, I read an article many, many years ago in the Harvard Business Review called Firing Your Customers. And uh, it was against the idea that the customer is always right. And it pointed out that uh, a minority of customers will cost the most. Uh, like 20% of customers can cost you up to 80% of your resources. And if you want to grow, it's important to fire them. And I think that's really important. You know, one of the things that is uh, very helpful is, is pruning the tree. Is uh, <laughs> what, what Stalin would call a purge. Which is when you put out something and you see how people react. And if they react in a sort of hostile and abusive manner, and if they say crazy stuff, like when someone says me, tells me, my yeah, Steph, your show has changed my life, here's a dollar, and I say, that's kind of crappy. And they say, well, it could be his last dollar. Like I would ever want to take someone's last dollar. I mean, people have emailed me and said, you know, I'm going through a financial hardship. I really want to donate to your show, though. And I say, listen, don't. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, eating is more important than philosophy. We, into some hierarchy of need stuff here. And um, so it is, it is obviously important. If it's your last dollar, then don't, uh, don't send it to anyone. Use it to buy some milk or <laughs> bread or something like that. Um, and people say, well, he's in college. There's a guy who's sending me the money. He's in college and he doesn't have any money. It's like, okay, well, then don't, then don't send me a dollar. Uh, one thing you do have when you're in college is time. You have time. And um, you can spend that time promoting, you know, my show or whatever show you find to be compelling. So it is interesting. It's uh, it's great to get people off the channel who have those particular perspectives. Uh, I really want people who are mean to not like my show. 
I think that's really, really important. Um, you either do the diet or you don't. And if you don't, I don't want you saying that you like the diet book. So I just wanted to mention that to begin with. But um, I know we've got some callers on the deck this morning. Uh, Mike, um, who be up with the firstness? Well, Steph, actually, before uh, before we move on to the first caller, I just want to make a note. Uh, you know, when people get upset about the, the dollar donation thing when it's attached to a note, like you've completely changed my life and then there's a dollar donation. It's, I think it's really important to point out to people just how little they're valuing themselves when, when they write a note like that attached to a $1 donation. You've changed you my, my life. life. Here's a dollar. Here's a dollar. Yeah. You're communicating a lot in that statement. And I think that's really important to look into because I know it hits me like a ton of bricks. And we get those messages. I, unfortunately, it's quite frequently. We get that kind of stuff. And it's definitely a bit jarring to see, like, wow, you changed your life, had some big impact, and this is how much you value yourself. This is something that was really powerful for me to look at when it comes to supporting things that I care about. There's multiple subscription levels for Free Domain Radio. We have $5 subscriptions, 10 20 50 and 100 for the, the people that I will bow down and kiss their feet on a daily basis if necessary. Um, and at the $5 subscription level, it comes down to $0.16 cents a day. At the $10 subscription level, it comes down to $0.32 cents a day. At the $20 subscription level, it comes down to $0.65 cents a day. The $50 subscription level, it's $1.64 per day. And at the $100 subscription level, it's $3.28 a day. Now, when I was deciding, you know, long before I was working with stuff, long before I was working for the show, when I was deciding, okay, I'm gonna, this show's important to me, I'm going to sign up, I want to support this because, hey, if I don't support it, it's going to go away. I looked at those numbers, did the breakdown and said, wow, how much is this worth to me to have this in my life? Is it worth a dollar to me a day? Is it worth 65 cents to me a day? I mean... You know, when you break down the numbers like that, and compared to how much I was putting in the vending machine at my old job on a daily basis, it really kind of put things in perspective and helped me shift my priorities from a financial standpoint. And and someone in the chat just mentioned uh, church-going Catholics donate $10 a week on average. Listen, this, this the video fundamentally wasn't about donating to Free Domain Radio. The video was about living your values. Now, if there's something you believe is better than this show, that's better for the world, support that. But talk the talk. But also walk the walk along with it. You know, if if you talk the talk without walking the walk, without living your values, without you know going out there and uh, hate to say evangelizing that which you think is incredibly important, that's uh, it's not good. Don't don't be passive. It's all about being active. It's about creating positive change yourself. You know, and not just waiting for someone else to do it for you. But a big part of this show is about inspiring people to take responsibility for their own actions, their own behavior, and realize the amount of efficacy that they can have in the world when it comes to making positive change. I know for a long time I was extremely passive when it came to uh, making changes. It's like, oh man, I didn't have, I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't, uh, you know, that's other people can do that stuff. That's big stuff. I feel small. Um, you know, I can't do that kind of thing. But, uh, very quickly, I realized that was not the case. Most people walk around with kind of that small attitude where it's like, oh, there, there's these other big players in the world. They're going to do all the moving and shaking and create all this stuff, and I can just be incredibly passive because I'm, I'm not in that world. You know, I, <laughs> my, uh, I don't have that membership ticket to that kind of club to do those kind of cool things to affect positive change. 
but that's that's really all in your head. You know, it's one of those things, if you believe it to be true, you're right. You know, and if you believe you can affect positive change, guess what? You're right. <laughs> uh, your own attitude and the amount of work that you put behind that attitude or don't put behind that attitude really determines what you can and can't do. And I know for me, realigning my priorities with my values made a huge impact in my life. Yes. Stefan von Molyneux. I'm back. Actually, that right after my intro, the entirety of Windows froze. That's what I oh. call a powerful intro. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, listened to that. Stu- uh, just read that study about this first real-time recordings or real-time measurements of, of spanking. I didn't. I was looking forward to digging into that, though. Can you give a brief synopsis for everyone? Yeah. So um, this, um, this researcher had parents, primarily moms, wear recorders for a couple of nights at home. And... What happened was uh, he found that uh, they were spanking their children a heck of a lot more than they claimed they were. And, you know, they were not following any of the, quote, best practices for spanking only as a last resort after negotiation. uh, No, no, no more than twice, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. None of that was occurring. They were basically just piling onto these kids. And instead of them. As, as you know, parents say, well, we hit our kids sort of 15 to 20 times a year. Uh, it turns out it was 15, oh, so 18 times a week. Oh, God. A week. Oh, my God. A week. And the children in the study ranged from seven months to four years of age. Seven months? <laughs> I, like, I, I don't even have words for my outrage, but I, I'm sure I will find some, though not on this particular show. But, uh, I mean, just amazing, you know? It, uh, I mean, I'm stunned at uh, the degree to which it uh, it occurs. And, and this is when women knew they were being recorded. Imagine how bad it would be if they didn't have the mic pack around. Or... And it was for completely minor things. You know, they would hit their children just casually, just brutally, like apes. Hit their kids just for, you know, uh, not listening, not doing the right thing. You know, nothing major, no major infractions. I mean, they didn't hear one. Didn't get things fast enough, wasn't paying attention. Whap, 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 whap. It's like these hit bots. And this is why we can't have nice things. All right, we're up and running. If we would like to move on to the first caller. All right, up first today is Andrew Z. Andrew Z writes in and asks, why does the UK population always seem to fall in line under elite power in times of crisis? Churchill, Monty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you on the line, Andrew? Yeah, I'm here. You mean... Um... Monty, like the desert, Montgomery, the desert guy, right? You know these yeah, kind Montgomery. of, yeah. I mean, yeah, he he um he ran the desert campaign in Africa against Rommel in '42, just this massive piece of tank-based chess warfare. And uh, so, why do um why do the British people? Do you think it's the British people in particular who fall in line with these leaders when there is an external threat? Not necessarily just just the English or the British. It's 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 more of a this idea that that there is elite power which rests above the people. I mean, as you as you've talked about, the, the kind of class system in the UK is is kind of endemic. It's 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 deep deep in the psychology of the population. You know, this idea that there are other human beings. Which sit above you and are absolutely beyond any 
anything you understand or any realm. There's this kind of, you know, super elite power, like the monarchy or whatever. And, you know, the class system is so ingrained here that um, it's it's kind of unbelievable for people that really don't don't really live in the UK or really understand To, to kind of conceive of, there's a kind of deep, deep sort of subjugation. It's unusual because there are people that wander this country and they have no perception that they kind of rise above their station at all. That they, they they believe that this power is all well, all powerful. There is there is no no way to connect with it or join it or overthrow it or uh, these kind of things. I mean, that that's the kind of thing I'm trying to get at. Why? Why does that exist here? What, what is this so special about this country where it has one of the most ingrained class systems on the planet? That's essentially it. <laughs> right. No, it's it's a big question. I mean, I can't, you know, answer it with any particular comprehensiveness, but I can share a few thoughts. British moms are pretty violent. And uh, like 80, 80 to 85 percent of British moms admit to hitting their babies. And there was just a study done recently, I think it was just released a few days ago, on uh, April 15th, a day or, day or so ago, two, two days, two or three days ago. And it's the first real-time study of spanking. I think it took place in the U- U.S., but, you know, this is the special relationship uh, that uh, U.S. moms have with U.K. moms. And so a, b- a bunch of parents, uh, moms mostly, uh, vast majority were moms, they agreed to wear these recorders during a sort of typical evening. Uh, I, I, they did it for a week or so. And then they turned over these recordings to the researchers. And the researchers basically found that the moms were hitting their children continually and repeatedly without warning, without explanation, without reasoning. And where most parents say, well, we hit our kids 15 to 20 times a year, the researchers calculated that these kids were being hit on average 18 times a week. The children in the study ranged from seven months old to just shy of four years. Seven months to three years old. These moms were raining blows down upon these helpless and dependent children to the tune of 18 hits a week. And there was no, there's supposed to be some, quote, best practices for spanking. And those best practices are only as a last resort, only for serious infractions, only after trying to reason with the child, and never more than twice. And they found these kids were being hit many times. One kid hit her toddler seven times straight. And one day, in one day. No, yeah, in, in one go. Yeah, in one go. Hit the toddler seven times straight. It's just outrageous. And so, and, and these, so the, all of these hits were completely from, quote, minor infractions, as they called them, which is to say, basically, the kids didn't respond in the way the moms wanted in the moment. That uh, the kids didn't do something fast enough or weren't paying attention because they're three, right? <laughs> didn't listen. <laughs> I mean, you have to repeat for kids, of course. I mean, yeah. their brains are immature. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, these moms would be, in my category, classified as soul murderers. And the children are growing up in a gulag. They're growing up in 
extraordinary amounts of stressful human violence inflicted upon them by their supposed caregivers. Now, are women going to be called to task for this? Of course not, because women exist in a parallel universe of zero moral responsibility. Because, no, fundamentally, the only, women, the only people who could call women to account for this are other women. And other women who are interested in gender issues, with a few exceptions, <coughs> Karen's drawn, uh, they are um, t- just uh, bas- busy saying how terrible men are. But this is a kind of example. Oops, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Do you, do you think there's a kind of like creating this kind of micro fascist state within the family or something? Is that is that? Oh, it's not micro. It's macro. No, it's it's macro. The fascist state is is this toddlerhood. The the fascist state that shows up in politics is the micro version of that. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is the fascist state. Everything, as I've said, the, yeah, the state is an effect of the family. And if you grow up being randomly bashed, hit. 18 times a week by your caregiver. And this is when they knew they were being recorded. Mm. Can you imagine when the recorders come off? Well, yeah, I mean, for me, what you're describing is the kind of, a a kind of, a work camp or a kind of workhouse environment where, you know, these children become ownership in this, they become owned within this kind of power structure or something. They become sort of just some kind of, well, essentially a a small slave, you know, that's being punished. No, 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 sorry, you're not. No, uh, no? no, I I mean, with all due respect, I I don't think you're getting the complete level of horror. Ownership is not (laughs) the issue. No, no, listen, ownership is not the issue. Yeah. Because if I own a dog, right, if I have a dog, I own a dog, and I hit that dog 18 times a week, that could not be explained away because I own the dog, right? Does that make sense? And you you say slavery, if you say slavery, well, the price of a slave was the price of a car, like a good car back in the day. And when you buy a car, it's your property and you take care of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, this idea that people bought slaves and then beat them and whipped them and starved them. I mean, I'm sure there were a few sadists who do that, just as there are a few people who buy cars and drive them into the ground. I remember talking to a guy once who um, ran a garage saying that some guy brought in his car at 40,000 kilometers or something. He'd never changed the oil. And basically the entire engine had to be replaced. So there are idiots who do that. And, you know, I mean, so there were people who sadistically tortured and beat their slaves, but the majority of people had way too much money invested in their slaves to hit them 18 times a week or to destroy them in, in that way. Yeah. 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 yeah there, there, I don't know that there's a parallel that you can say mm-hmm. um, so you think other than this actually, is just sheer sadism. I'm sorry? So you, th- you think this is the, 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 these, some, these children in these circumstances sit even below that, as it were? They sit oh yeah, no, there's no, there's no parallel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, if if imagine, imagine. The, let me give you two scenarios, right? Just to, to sort of get the depths of horror that this article reveals. I'll do a whole show on this with more detailed references uh, from the actual article itself. But imagine if men were found, like were recorded, pet owners were recorded. They were all men, and they were found to be hitting their dogs eighteen times a week. Can you imagine the social eruption that would occur in oh, that in the situation? You're crazy. It would the place would go insane. You know. Yeah, I mean, and what if what if it was men and they were hitting their cats 18 times a week? <laughs> People would go mental, right? 
and men would be exoriated and, and reviled only and revealed. So, yeah. yeah, so that's one example, right? Of, of, you know, but of course, they're only children. I mean, they're not cats. <laughs> Who gives a fuck, right? So that's number one. And number two, imagine if men were fitted with recording devices and it found that on average, men hit their wives 18 times a week for things like being late with supper, the, the food not being warm enough, the coffee being brewed too strong, not paying attention, not bringing a beer when ordered, mm-hmm. and that men would hit their wives seven times in a row at times. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the social explosion that would come out of those findings? Well, one of the things... I mean, in a previous life, I used to work in a therapeutic childcare community. It was a very famous one. I, um, I won't mention any where it was, but it was it was it was the pinnacle, supposedly, of the the. It was the last chance saloon for some of the worst adolescent boys in the UK. Um, it really was where some of the most traumatised adolescent boys arrived in, and it was very testing place to work, but. You know, I came across children that were kept in cupboards and brought out to give oral sex to their parents. Oh, gosh. I've worked with children who, whose idea of getting close to an adult was to, on the, to within 20 minutes, offer them sexual favors, you know, this kind of thing. You know, complete devastation of young minds. And the violence, the levels of violence that were enacted against children was something that, that I couldn't really... You, you don't really understand it until you come face to face with the, the, the devastation that actually uh, appears in front of you. And the, the way that you know that actually these children, there, there would be almost no hope for maybe 60 to 70 percent of them. And they would dissolve into alcoholic alcoholism, drug abuse or, you know, kind of become predatory paedophiles themselves or whatever. And sure. and, and all, all the, the, the violence you know, that was enacted against them wasn't, you know, people blame men all the time for it, but but my own physical, my own experience and my own ability to read case notes and go through backgrounds and, and, uh, you know, confer with kind of other uh, people, other colleagues within the the services that I worked in was that, you know, 40 to 50% of some of these problems were enacted by women as women as well you know it was kind of their mothers their you know other members of their family and whatever so i mean you're right to you know when you're going down the violence route the spanking and, and all that that um, that is in my view is is can be classed as abuse but there the becomes this kind of in, in my own mind this idea that these children become chattels that they 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 i don't know how to describe their relationship with Parents and sometimes the modern family can be a quite disturbing thing to behold in a lot of respects, because of the the, the inescapable power dynamics and whatever that begin to construct themselves in a family, you know, with with negative behavioural uh, sort of dynamics or whatever. And uh, you know, I think that uh, for me, it's almost like you know. I'm working on a project at the moment, which is 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 about um, uh, murder suicides in families. How parents decide to kill their children and then kill themselves, 
And what what I come across all the time when I'm looking at this for this project, this film project, which is going to be actually a, a drama-based project, is that there is this level of, of I know you, you kind of rejected it, but it's this level of, of ownership. It's like the pharaohs used to kill their slaves and throw them into the, the pit after the 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 the, the uh, pyramid was erected, you know, and this kind of thing. This this whole idea that you know this uh, misconceived concept of love or whatever, which parents direct to their children, becomes this horrific maelstrom of of ownership, slavery, violence, or dependency, uh, emotional abuse, and and then on the extreme degenerates into extreme sexual uh, psychological destruction and abuse of the individual to the point where the individuals are raised to the, the, it ceases to exist. It becomes like the, the children, some of the children I came across became this kind of, they looked and acted like, like they were actors. That's the word. They were actors. They'd learned how to, a series of, they constructed a series of behaviors and, and whatever. And, uh, Way you're going. I would, yeah, I yeah. would argue that probably the, and this is just off the top of my head, subject to revision, but I, I would argue that the closest relationship in these kinds of situations, as described in this study, is a prisoner of war, because that's different from an yeah. ownership and a slave situation. Because in an ownership and slave situation, you're profiting, uh, either emotionally or financially, from whatever you own, right? But in a prisoner of war, it's overhead, right? And this is why prisoner of war situations tend to get so sadistic. So it probably is closer to a uh, a prisoner of war situation. Mm-hmm. And um, that is tragic. Now, you say the sort of, and just, you know, I don't have a final answer, but you say sort of, well, 40 to 50% of this was committed or perpetrated by women. Well, um, I put 100% responsibility in general uh, on on the women, right? Because That's either harsh. the women had, you know, but and it could be wrong, but I'll just, um, let me make the case and then you can tell me if, if you think it's, it's fairly valid. Okay. So, um, the woman, uh, either chooses to have sex with the man or she doesn't right now, if she doesn't, that's rape. That's a horrible crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, if, uh, she's not ready to be a mother and she's traumatized from the rape, of course, right? Then she should give the child up for adoption, right? Yeah, that would make sense. Right, so that's fine, right? And if she did choose to have uh, sex with the guy uh, and did not use birth control, and then let's say, well, people say, well, the man can use birth control too. That's true. But the woman is the one who stands to lose far more and therefore has a far greater incentive to, um, to, to insist on birth control, right? So, so if she had unprotected sex and she's not ready, and, and the guy's not right or the uh, mom is not in a position to care for a child, then again, she should, I, I hesitate to say, have an abortion because I'm still swinging wildly like a pendulum on that issue. But um, uh, so certainly give the child up for adoption. That's what used to happen before the welfare state, right? The vast majority of, of teen pregnancies or whatever, that the child would, you know, the woman would go away with mm-hmm. the female relative, have the child, and the child would be given up for adoption, and the girl would return to try and start her life, right? 
should move so, out of the family unit and just just begin like a normal progression as opposed well, she to... may even go back to high school or whatever but it would be this secret right yeah there wouldn't be a depend a le- moving into dependency at that point yeah right right so this is how it used to be and this is when of course teen pregnancy was far lower now you of course have a welfare state and the change in behavior seems to indicate that women are having children for money why, why are they not giving up the children because they get money if they don't. So essentially the children are hostages that the taxpayers are forced to pay for because in the past these women would have given those children up for adoption and the children would have ended up much better off. Mm -hmm. At least according to the studies that I've read, children who were adopted uh, do as well as the general population, but children raised in single mother households do far worse than the general population. So these women are selfishly holding on to these little cash cows called children using the state to extort money from the taxpayer to keep them in bonbons and soap operas, and mm. then they are beating up the kids. Do, do you think that the the relationship between the people and the state in terms of the welfare state, as, as it, it's, it, it, it's just a humongous corruption of these ties between communities and people to make their own decisions? And the welfare state in the UK, getting, you know, we're moving towards, obviously, maybe answering some of the question I asked at the beginning. And I think the welfare state, as you've described eloquently many times before, is, is in my view, the root of all, well, most of the evils we see in modern societies are based around this kind of dependency, this kind of complicit cutting off of the legs of the individual's ability to even conceive of moving on and becoming responsible or, uh, you know, kind of setting aside something of themselves, you know, to, to make, to, to kind of make a life based on what they can achieve. Well, and okay. St- no, but, but, but hang on, hang on, because yeah, I feel that there's this subtle white knight ghost floating through the relationship, uh, <laughs> the conversation that we're having, which could be wrong. But, um, Christoph has said in the chat that he doesn't sort of follow the argument. So let me finish it up and, and then um, yeah. say why I think you might be white knighting a bit. So women can drop their children off at any time at a police station or a fire station or a hospital and people will take care of those children. And those children, um, large numbers of, of resources will be devoted to trying to find those children a good home. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I, if I go out and work very hard to, to get a pet... Right, and then I am paid to take care of that cat pet, and I can drop that pet off any time and lose being paid to take care of it. But I keep that pet and abuse it. Everybody would understand that I don't really want the pet, but I'm abusing. The, I'm keeping the pet and taking out my frustrations about not wanting to have the pet because people are paying me. Yeah, I mean right. that. That's like. That's a kind of really harsh but exceptionally poignant way to describe. Well, no, you say harsh, but harsh yeah. has no value philosophically. What's harsh exactly. about it? I mean, is yeah. it yeah. women can women can drop these kids off to get better homes any time they want. Exactly. But if then they, really care, they will yeah. lose some benefits. They will lose being paid to take care of their children, which they're not really doing. They're basically just brutalizing them and then turning them loose like rabid wolves on society who then pays further prices for their greed. So they're hostages for money. So women who are – now, uh, if uh, – you know, the, the one situation where I could see a woman is not to blame is if a woman is taking great care of her kids, the kids get kidnapped, and a man abuses them. Terrible. 
one in a billion, but terrible, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, women choose to have sex, choose to keep the pregnancy, choose to keep the children. And so I'm not sure how we cannot say that women aren't 100% responsible for this stuff. At that point, I think I, I, I am in complete agreement with your idea because the child becomes a prisoner uh, of for, for somebody else's fortune. It becomes just a conduit to, to gather some cash, you know, or, or you know, s sustain the, the host. So, so the parent has a completely parasitic relationship with the child at that point. Is that, is, is that what you say? Is that, is that it? Just... Yeah. The, the child is, is kept as a hostage for government resources yeah. extracted from decent men and women and their children in the form of debt mm. at the point of a gun. Uh, it is, it's a hostage situation in general, which is one of the reasons why it's so uh, decrepit. And basically what happens is then you're, you're paying for the production of dis dysfunctional children. You're paying the worst elements in society to have kids in general, right? And, uh, and, and let me tell you why I think there's some white knighting going on here. Again, it's just my, my thoughts. It's not a, clinchy, not a clinchy argument. So when you, I think you're sound, you sound a Roughly my age-ish, is that you don't have that yeah. silver lint of the... Uh, no, 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 silver voice, lint right? of my teenage years is gone. <laughs> right, right. So when you were a kid and you heard about the patriarchy and you heard about men hitting women and men, you know, wearing wife beaters and putting their hands down the front of their pants and demanding that their woman get them a beer or make them a sandwich, <laughs> right? Did you ever hear the argument that, well, men have, you know... And I'm not saying I agree with the argument, but this is a general perception. We see men have uh, grown up in a patriarchy, and it's been a patriarchy for thousands of years. You know, they, they, they're doing the best they can with the knowledge they have. We just need to lovingly educate them and support them in trying to weed them out or wean them off this kind of behavior, which is not really their fault. I mean, they just inherited this particular attitude, and, and they saw their dads do this to their moms. They saw their moms accept it. And so, you know, let's cut the massive amounts of slack and approach them with love uh, and, and acceptance and curiosity and really help to slowly educate them out of these, uh, these problems, which really they didn't create, but just inherited because of the momentum of the patriarchy. Right. So, so Did you ever hear yeah. that? Uh, well, I kind of uh, can agree with that, having come across violent men in the past, you know, just this idea that they have no... No, but did you ever hear that argument? Well, I've heard that, yeah. I mean, it, what essentially that if you just treat them with a bit of kindness and respect and education. I mean, are you saying that that's a wrong thing? I don't really understand. No, no. What I mean is, did you ever hear sort of in the mainstream media or the portrayals, did you ever hear of abusive men being given a lot of sympathy for growing up in a patriarchy and it's not really their fault? No, uh, just no, not, to do at the best not at all. They're, they're right. never seen as victims. They're always perpetrators of crime or evil or monsters. Yeah. So and they go to jail. Yeah, they're incarcerated, fined, that's it, yeah, ostracized. Right. So, so this is my, and this has been my perspective for years, which is, if it's true that we should explain away women's evil with reference to environment and the welfare state and history and blah, 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 okay, well, let's, yeah. let's make that case. Mm -hmm. Then we owe massive apologies to all of the men who were put through the legal ringer for far less egregious crimes, mm -hmm. hitting your wife, is far less of a crime than hitting a child because the wife is there by choice. The wife has economic and legal 
and moral independence and massive amounts of support systems to get out. The wife is, is you know, got to test drive the husband and so kids are just born into it. Yeah. Right? Hitting a child is far worse morally than hitting a wife or hitting a husband. And if men did not get off the hook because of the momentum of history or the environment or this or that or the other, then by God, let's not let women have that same excuse because that is not treating women equally. Women keep saying, I want to be treated equally to a man. I want to be treated equally to a man. Okay, then no fucking excuses for hitting babies because men don't get any excuses for hitting adult women. They go to jail. Absolutely. I mean, there is absolutely, it's destruction for somebody, you know, the male will be destroyed by society for engaging in that behavior. I'm not saying the behavior is right because it's something I would never countenance, obviously, but uh, the, the, the level of moral outrage that is directed towards that kind of, th that kind of behavior is, is, is humongous. It's just huge. But the reason, the fundamental reason emotionally that men cannot hold women to the same, same standards is that men are terrified of women. <laughs> men are, and look, this study shows exactly why. If you get hit by a woman 18 times a week from being a baby to being a teenager, what the fuck do you think that's going to do to your perception of women? Men are terrified of women. I mean, at two levels. One is that men want sex and women can say yes or no. And so nobody wants to displease women for fear of being knocked out of the gene pool. And that's one aspect. And I think that, you know, that, that has some effect. But by God, if, if you were beaten by a black man 18 times a week, and if everyone you knew was beaten by black men 18 times a week from babyhood to teenage him, and then you say, well, I, I, I have no idea why everyone's frightened of blacks. Well, because <laughs> the blacks beat everyone as babies, for the, you know, everyone for the most part, right? And so this is something fundamental to understand that there is a great deal of rank terror, feral hatred, and Stockholm Syndrome worship of women because women are so incredibly violent in general, on average, to children. And they're more violent towards their male children than they are to their female children. And so men grow up absolutely terrified of women. And this fear of women is so foundational to everything in society. The fear of a woman's anger, the fear of a woman's hostility, the fear of a woman's discontent and displeasure is so foundational to everything in society that like, like if you can't see that, then you can, I'm not you, but if, if people can't see that, they don't understand why society is the way it is. So where does the where's the, who sank what what uh, what sanctions this? How has this come to be to be? Where did the where did the women find um, you know legitimation for this behaviour? What rationale well, is being in, 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 in the you. complicitness of the child? No, in you, in you, yeah. You know, with all due respect, and again, knowing your sensitivity to these issues, I'm just sort of pointing it out. Yeah. In you, in the white knighting, because you're looking for environmental explanations for women's right. behavior. Okay. Right? So I can only assume that you experienced some significant aggression from a woman as a child. Um, no, actually males. <laughs> Always men. Never women. Always men. It's funny enough. All right. Well, no, that, let's, yeah. let's ask yeah. about that, if, again, yeah. if you don't mind. But... Um, so if it's the men mm. 
who were abusive towards you as a child, for which I'm incredibly sorry, of course. Yeah, but then what were they doing there? Yeah, because uh, essentially, I think in times past, the, the kind of uh, social uh, ramifications of of kind of families dissolving had greater impact, I think, socially than they do now. So, you know, partners used to stay together more and that kind of thing. I think that's probably what it is. I've never actually faced any significant abuse from anybody, but any abuse or any kind of violence I've confronted has always come from the male domain. But I have experienced firsthand the, the ramifications and outcomes of all types of abuse on children. Do you know you just female. you just did it again, right? White knighted again. I'm sorry. You just did it again. Again, <laughs> I'm just just pointing it out, right? Because I said, well, why why were the men in your why were the men in your life who were abusing you? And you said, well, but society back then frowned more on women getting divorced and bloody bloody blah, 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 right? I'm not taking response. I'm not apportioning responsibility in the correct place. Is that is that is that what what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean. So are you saying that you were abused by your father, but not by your mother? Well, the, the kind of things that I confronted as a child were to do with, um, you know, things to do with people not uh, stepping up to the plate and taking on the responsibilities. But also, you're correct in when you're saying a lot of these men suffer at the hands of women in terms of the dependency that, that men have had foisted upon them in this society from, you know, that men seem to think sometimes they don't exist if they don't have connection to women on all the, the, the levels that they believe they should. So almost, in my view, some men don't exist outside of the realm of women. Is that, is that truthful or what? I, I think that's an extreme way of putting it, and certainly the men going their own way guys would say men don't exist if they are focused on pleasing <laughs> the needs of women and not sort of thinking about themselves and so on. Yeah, yeah. But so you were not spanked by your mother but or disciplined by your mother but well, only your father? I, I, I had, um, I've been spanked by teachers. I've been uh, – actually, some of the worst violent episodes were from in, – in education for me. But uh, within the family, I uh, – I'm sorry, male or female teachers? Uh, both. Both. Both, yeah. Because you just a few minutes earlier said that you'd not experienced any abuse at the hands of women? Not, not, nothing that I can really sticks out – nothing that really sticks out. Some of the, some of the things that you've talked about, such as, uh, you know – within the family women can sometimes uh, dominate the space you know of of men in terms of the emotional space and the men become sucked into this kind of emotional world i've experienced that where where women dominate have dominated you emotionally and you've you've been looking for ways out and that's some of the way i've experienced relationships with with women in the family is uh, is is from this kind of the way that uh, a lot of them seem to have this idea that that their domination of the emotional space and absolute uh, right to dominate that space that that's where I've come across it most. That that you are one abstract guy. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm getting like a PhD abstract uh, rather than personal experiences. Uh, yeah. Women dominate yeah. the emotional space. In <laughs> wow. I just can't. I can't see that being like a uh, 
a Valentine's Day thank you for dominating my emotional space. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's what, what what does that mean? Give me well, some examples. Example, right? Look, women spend women spend eighty percent of the money. Women drive home purchases, or women drive interior decorating. I mean, you know, you and I, uh, you know, a cave with a big screen TV for the most part, right? That's yeah, yeah, useful stuff. Yeah, women stuff. women drive women drive a lot of this stuff. It's not bad or anything. I think that it's important to bring some realism. You know, to to do, do we need this room repainted? I mean, is it, you know, like I get that women like to nest, and that's that's fine. You know, a man's job is his penis, a woman's home is her vagina. I get all of that stuff, but um, it is important for men to say, yeah, no, this is this is shared, right? I mean, men earn the majority of the money, and women spend the majority of the money in a family. And I think it's time for men to say, no, 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 come on. I've definitely <laughs> let's, come let's bring that. some realism. Let's let's save some money here, you know. Let's let's not spend money on stuff that that is not particularly productive, right? I have suffered financial abuse firsthand. I know what that's about. You know, the idea that if things are not being bought or things are not being done, then there's something wrong. I've had that, you know. This idea that if things are not purchased, there's an emotional cost for that. You know, that that is something I have. Struggled with what is the uh, emotional cost, Mr. Abstraction? What, uh... Well, the, the emotional cost would be withdrawal, withdrawal of uh, of um, of affection. You know, this kind of idea, you know, this kind of movement away, you know, the coldness appears. This, this I've had that. that that's been yeah, very so rarely, is it, is it not to, you know, again... That's on a romantic to, to be, level. Uh, kind of, but to, yeah. be, to be blunt, isn't that the woman saying, if you don't give me money, I'm not having sex with you? That's essentially what it is, yes. Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, I mean, yeah. let's yeah, call it what it is, right? Emotional speed withdrawal speed, and coldness. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. Port Vagina is closed to super tanker incursions until the toll fees are paid, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Britain. I've just drank a cup of tea here. You know, it's, it's like, remember, remember my uh, feet manners? Oh, so now it's know? your environment, which is why you're so abstract. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> trying to, you know, it's like two opposing magnets trying to put responsibility in, <laughs> into well, the people in your world. But, okay, a, a quick question. Question for you then uh, is, yeah. is uh, the so the state is the state a female or a male? What's happening? And that's why. Well, I mean, it's, it has to appeal. It has to appeal to both voting blocks, right? Yeah. Right. So for the males, it provides some economic freedom. It provides national defense so that the amygdala and neofrontal cortex doesn't rouse itself too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, for the women, it provides massive subsidies for terrible decisions. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's both. You know, there's, there's a study that has shown that the people who are conservatives who tend to be into smaller government, uh, religion, and a, a larger national defense or more spending on the national defense, like the Romney budget, which is all about cutting the government, actually going to add billions, tens of billions of dollars a year to uh, defense spending. And they found that the conservative brain is, is wired differently from the liberal brain or the left-wing brain versus the right-wing brain. The right-wing brain reacts more strongly to negative stimuli and threats, right? You get a fight-or-flight mechanism kicking in. The liberal brain does not respond as negatively to, to threats or negative stimuli. You know, they show a, a picture of somebody with looks like they've got a spike through their hand and the right wing brain goes nuts and the left wing brain is like, well, that's, you know, that's bad. But mm-hmm. And of course, the people are coming to all kinds of judgments about this. Uh, but that seems to me kind of like a male-female thing. And the left and the right does to some degree fall along 
male uh, and female lights, males on the right, women on the left. And of course, men are more hardwired to perceive threats. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Because we're the protectors. And so it's kind of important for us to be able to perceive threats. Uh, Women are less uh, able to perceive threats because they have a protector, right? And uh, it's sort of like if I'm walking through a lion preserve, then I'm a lot more alert than if I'm driving through a lion preserve in a Humvee, right? (laughs) Because in the second part, I have a protector called the Humvee, which will keep the lion's jaws away from my neck. So anyway, just, uh, I, I think that those would be the general ways it breaks down. And the government tries to appeal to both. But in general, the stakes for women's bad mistakes are more immediate and higher than for men's bad mistakes. And so if a woman gets pregnant with the wrong guy, then, you know, I mean, she's got the pregnancy, she's got the birth, she's got uh, breast milk pouring out of her. She, you know, to give up the child is, I'm not saying it's easy, it's horrible. Absolutely excruciating, you know, for a woman with any sensitivity, which is not to say every woman, right? But um, they have the, the, the stakes for a woman's bad decisions are immediate. And, you know, women, when they have kids, they just become these black holes of resources resource, resource, resource. Healthcare, bills, need money, need shelter, need heat, need food, right? It just sucks it all up, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way, you know, it's how we get this giant brain is to give, be, give birth to kids just extremely throw resources at it. Again, yeah, again. you just got to throw yeah. resources. We're born yeah. like a, a baby horse can walk within hours shape. or days of it, you know, and we take like <laughs> yeah. almost a year. I mean, we're born way too early, and that's because our brain, if it grew any bigger, would unfortunately split the woman open like a banana with a truck driving over it. <laughs> and so we're born earlier, and uh, yeah. there's nothing, again, this is just the biology. Yeah. We get the giant brains, and in return for the giant brains, we have disabled women littering the planet, breastfeeding, and, right? So women become these black holes of resources in order to grow the brains needed to plot <laughs> the criminal offenses that the children of single mom are prone to. And obviously, and this, so, sorry, it's okay. obviously the state and corporations and big business understand this, and this becomes an opportunity to make a hell of a lot of money, you know, at that point, I should imagine. Oh, yeah. You, that, you know, you, this is why there's so much male bashing going on. Yeah. It's because women have made bad choices in their men, and they need to go and see media that portrays all men as mm. idiots mm. so that they don't feel like they personally have just made bad decisions. Like, I don't sit there and say, well, the ideal woman is 12 feet tall, but I guess I'll put up with my wife. Because they say, well, there's no 12-foot-tall woman, right? Mm. So it's an unrealistic expectation. The funny thing is that men have been hammered for their unrealistic expectations about mm. women. You know, I want a big, I want big tits, but no big ass. <laughs> you generally get big tits with a big ass. It's kind yeah. of the way it works, right? And so, you know, airbrushed Playboy models, a Playgirl, a Playboy model, sorry. Uh, it's unrealistic. Uh, and so men are so, but the thing is too, is that the, the, the degree to which women are hungry for male bashing in the media I simply that, is yeah. there for, to, to tell women that there's no such thing as a good man. Everywhere you see men look ridiculous and foolish and, you know, Homer Simpson and American dad, and they're just dysfunctional and foolish but or are men being... completely unrealistic, like superheroes, like billionaire Bruce Wayne, the bat-suited <laughs> crime fighter or whatever. Yeah. And so women then get to say, well, if there aren't any good men, I guess I did the best I could with what I had. But there's this massive conspiracy in the media to not hold women accountable for making bad choices uh, with the men that they've chosen to have children with. 
and uh, it's uh, natural, and women will pay hugely uh, for this, and that's why. And, and so women have a much higher and more immediate need for resources if they make mistakes than men do, right? I mean, a man makes a mistake like, oh, my God, I smoked a pack a day for 30 years. Now I have lung cancer. Well, it's very deferred. It's very, you know, then he needs resources or whatever, right? But people then at least say, well, you know, you were stupid to smoke, right? Oh, or, you know, well, that smoking was fun. I hope it was as fun as, you know, I hope it makes up for the lung cancer or whatever. But, the whole but women, when they have kids, yeah, their needs are their needs are like bang right away. I, I like I I gotta I gotta I gotta I gotta have health care. I gotta have a, a dentist. I I I need and the kids need. They're hungry, right? Men make mistakes, and it takes usually years and years to show up. Hmm. But women make mistakes, and this giant black hole of of feed the pregnant feed the, the breastfeeding moms the car loans the the credit cards the the, the whole lifestyle you, you have to build around a contemporary family and a contemporary nesting mentality is 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 just truly staggering isn't it the whole the amount of resources and finance that that kind of um that kind of mentality can construct, you know, the, the yeah. And a man, a man yeah. can, a single man can downsize and a single woman can downsize to some degree as well. Yeah. But a single man can downsize and, you know, he can go live in his car or whatever, but a woman with two kids, she can't really downsize. And this is why moms need like free healthcare, free dental care, free education in public schools. They need welfare. They need like all of this stuff. They just need, 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 and not all right. But you know, majority. All, all women need those resources, and they either get them from a good man or a predatory state. And, and this is degree? why irresponsible yeah. femininity is one of the biggest drivers of, grow, of the growing fascism. But it's getting even—it's it's getting to the point where men are becoming feminized, does Steph? The point is that the, the magazines, uh, the, the whole kind of concept that you know you can emasculate a male, therefore it becomes less of a threat. And this is actually referring back to my original question, fantastically enough. And this is what you're very good at, <laughs> is that, you know, this whole idea that the male uh, as a form of uh, resistance against tyranny and resistance against fascism is having those tools eradicated. Those tools that exist within a man are being uh, dissembled or di in some form by the feminized media the, you know the, 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 you just have to look at the TV the garbage that comes through as popular culture the the pop music uh, you know the, the kind of culture that exists around uh, mainstream media um, especially kind of entertainment media whatever the images that mod, the modern male has to aspire to are are more female constructs and more marketing constructs than they are any form of uh, kind of relationship to any identity a man may construct on his own. Is that correct? Is that, is that Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly true to say that as women have turned more and more to the state to give them resources, then the requirement for male virtue has gone down. Mm. Now, these are trends. I still hold individuals responsible. But, I mean, this is why you, you can't shrink the state right now. This, that there are too many child hostages. Yeah. I mean, you, you simply you can't shrink the state because let's say you're going to cut the welfare state by 50%. Well, the welfare state is almost exclusively serving the needs of single mothers. That's why there's a welfare state. It's because women are irresponsible with their eggs and because men are irresponsible with their sperm. And therefore, that lack of responsibility turns into a predatory clawing at the wallets of everybody who's kept it in their pants or at least in their balls. And so... 
what what would happen if you if you cut the welfare state? Well, these women who are not particularly attractive to a quality man, as I've sort of made the case before, you know, oh, you have two kids, <laughs> you're on welfare, you didn't finish <laughs> high school, yeah, let's roll, right? I mean, that's just not, I mean, we are, we, we, we sort of evolved above the lions, right? Like the lion, you know, a new guy comes along, he just kills all the kids, right? Because he wants his genes yeah. to... To reproduce, right? So it's not to the point where the man will say, okay, you strangle those kids and we will get it on, right? I mean, some women do that, very few, but some women do, right? Well, the guy, he was going to leave me because of my kids, so I killed my kids. It's rare, but it happens. And so uh, if you cut back the welfare state, where are these women going to get their resources from? Now, if it were just the women, I'd say, well, you know, um, if you make these bad decisions, then like... Men, for the most part, you have to live with the consequences of those bad decisions. But they have children, which means to say they have hostages, right? And so what, what, it's not the kid's fault. And so what, literally what is going to happen to the kids? And there's just too many. There's too many. Single-parent households are far too common now. I mean, even if you could outvote them, which you can't because they have such a massive incentive to get resources and men don't have as much incentive to deny those resources, right? Because it's not their kids who are hungry, right? So they're, they're driven, they're single-minded, focused, get resources, get resources, get resources, right? And, you know, a good woman does that by being a great wife and a great mom and a great friend. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> when my wife was breastfeeding, uh, I was happy to uh, provide uh, as, as much income as I could while... She was not working because I love her and she's a fantastic woman and never been, you know, what's mine is hers and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So normally women get resources from a quality man, which is why men pursue quality and women should be attracted to it. But once a state steps in, uh, and there's just too many now. Like, literally, what would happen? I mean, children would get sick. Children might die. Children would go hungry. Because these women, what, what are they going to do? There'd be a transition period that would be really rough. And this is why I, yeah, I don't see any possibility of this i mean outside of women's general capacity to strike terror into the heart of men uh, because of the history of being hit by so many women uh, which has diminished to to a small degree because at least in a lot of places you can't hit kids in school anymore Mm. but um there's no no possibility i mean all that would happen is the media would pounce on every child suffering as a result of the welfare cuts and they would say you see what the people who want to cut welfare are doing to these poor children and the sad-eyed moms and the fear and that it's not possible can't can't stop it. it it's got to crash i don't think there's any other way so so the whole kind of destruction of any concept of autonomous male power has is 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 being consciously eradicated by the state do you believe that well I, I don't know that they're sitting there saying let us consciously eradicate male power it's just that we don't have the ethics to deny need Right. The ethics to deny need is fundamentally what ethics are about. Like, why do you need nutrition? Because the stuff you want to eat ain't good for you in general. Right. And, and I, you know, I get that. Right. I mean, the stuff I want to eat is sugar and fat and salt and crap like that. Right. And we, we need ethics to deny need because when people screw up, they get very needy and they desperately want people to cover their yeah. screw ups, right? Cups they they want to win the lottery so they can yeah. pay. Yeah, they but want to win the yeah. lottery so they can pay off their credit card like debts the when banks. they've got heavy. <laughs> yeah, and the bank. Yeah, absolutely. The banks. The banks do it in the same way. They, 
screw up and then they want everyone else to cover their losses. It's so, natural. So I mean, they're, they're screaming babies, essentially. You know, they're screaming to mama. <laughs> well, no, because you yeah. shouldn't deny a baby its needs, right? right? <laughs> you right. should deny okay. it. Right, but so, so having, the, having the, the strength of character to deny other people's needs when those needs are unjust is really important. And what happens if you don't deny people's needs people's unjust needs. I'm just going to say all the needs I'm talking about are unjust, just so I don't have to keep saying yeah. that word. When you don't have the strength of character to deny need, then you fail to produce the negative examples to keep further need at bay, right? So if a woman has a child with a bad man, then she either you know has an abortion, gives it up for adoption or raises it dropping out of high school and living in her parents' basement and she can't go out and she can't do anything and she's got this pretty terrible existence. And then all the other girls say, oh, man, I don't want that, right? You know, if you deny the catastrophes of bad decisions and the consequences, then we, we no longer have signposts to guide us along the way uh, of life. Uh, there's no don't go here, right? Yeah, I mean, you, don't do you're that. Just, there's no map. There's no, there's no boundaries. There's nothing. Just like an amorphous kind of blob spreading around. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, this old Stephen R. Donaldson series. Uh, there was this leper named Thomas Covenant. And uh, he, he had to do what's called a VSC. I mentioned this before, a visual search of extremities. Because he, because he was a leper, his extremities were numb. So he didn't know that he had any pain. He had to go and check and see if he'd scraped or bumped or bruised or cut or something like that. And the disasters of some people's lives is a signpost to other people. And when you deny that, I'm not saying that these people should die. I mean, I have a, a great deal of sympathy for a lot of people and, and, and so on, right? But if you shield people too much from the negative consequences of their own decisions, you know, whatever you subsidize increases. Charity is so unbelievably tricky and so unbelievably difficult to get right. I mean, I've tried it many times in my life and a few times it's worked, but for the most part, I might as well have just set fire to my money and time yeah. and resources and all that kind of stuff. So it is, uh, it's very tricky. It's very tricky. And, uh, of course you, you shouldn't, it's like trying to paint the Mona Lisa with a set of paint buckets being thrown into the jet stream of a idling airliner. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you, you'll get some color, but it ain't going to be any details. Right? Jackson Pollock. <laughs> Listen, let's talk a little bit about, just to move on before we move on, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do in, uh, Amsterdam. Oh yeah, yeah. So that, that's um, well. I'll let you. Um, I'll let you kind of tell people what's ha what what you're doing, and then we'll we'll feed into that. And why well, you, why are you in Amsterdam? <laughs> well, f first of all, we're we're going to be filming massive amounts of revenge porn um, <laughs> <laughs> against who I don't know. No, actually, it's because I'm going to do a show on revenge porn. Uh, best research ever, but. Um, yeah, so we're going to. So I'm going to go to Amsterdam to speak at the next web conference uh, next week, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be my biggest speech to date. I'm looking forward to it, and you're going to be in Amsterdam as well. And we're going to do a little walkabouties. We're going to do a couple of interviews yep. um, with me. Uh, we're going to sort of me rolling around Amsterdam, uh, chatting with people and asking them questions and trying to figure out what their level of philosophical and political knowledge is compared to their knowledge of who Kim Kardashian is or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to have a sort of little walkabout and uh, a little sort of mini documentary uh, for this trip, which I think would be a lot of fun. And people will get to see me out of my lair of the big white 
2001 Space Odyssey ping pong ball that I normally live in. But sorry, go ahead. I think it would be a real treat for, for some of the uh, subscribers and followers to uh, to see you in a, in a different space, in a different country. That would be fantastic. And and just, um, you know, put you in a, in a different location and context and, you know, discuss things and, and, and whatever. I mean, it's going to be, for me, it's kind of like, a really exciting thing. I mean, the ideas you have are, are obviously gaining traction because, you know, people are prepared to fly you halfway around the globe and uh, put you in a, a huge forum with some of some very big players on the internet space. And uh, I think uh, FD free domain radio and, and yourself is set to really uh, cause be a part of, if not the, kind of creator of a revolution in in thinking and and the way people approach their relationship to knowledge and and kind of uh, deep thinking and you know introspection and then you know kind of project that out to the world i mean you're you know the whole freedom in radio thing seems to be exploding as you've you've told me it's kind of exponential growth and we can hopefully you know bring more people in and give them a good short documentary or little film and you know introduce people to you in that sense as well so that would be that that's what i'm excited about yeah and of course um if people want to join the meetup they can email mike operations at freedomainradio.com we're going to do a meetup and i think you're going to come and, and film that we have these great conversations at the meetup and it's a shame sometimes that they never get anywhere but uh, like out of the the room but uh, so yeah i appreciate it of course we're going to rely on donations to help you cover your costs which we'll talk about when the film comes out but Fantastic. tell people a little bit about the quality of the equipment, uh, if not necessarily the subject. Um, what, oh, uh, well, we're, how we're are you going to make film, it look great? We're going we're to film on Super 16, uh, true film quality, uh, which means that um, essentially um, it's it's going to have a filmic quality to it. It's going to have that nice look that people recognize from going to the movies or watching any kind of quality, uh, quality sort of film or, or documentary. You know, we're going to take that video harshness away that youtube box and we're going to put you in the real world <laughs> and uh you know the, the you know that's going to create you know to in my view that'll that'll be a lovely uh thing to look at we're going to take a look at amsterdam we're using uh black magic cinema cameras and and high quality audio and um you know we'll, we'll this thing will look nice and it'll have lots of interesting things in it and amsterdam being a beautiful city we, we can capture some of that. And I'm sure you're looking forward to actually seeing the city. I don't think you've actually been before. So, um, no, Stephen, I don't I think you've actually been. No, no. But there are areas we don't want to take to maybe. <laughs> Would it being the red light capital of Europe and all these kind of things? There's a lot of interesting dynamics in Amsterdam. Uh, there's kind of libertarian-wise, there is no war on drugs in these places. Uh, uh, drugs are openly smoked and use in places like Amsterdam and uh, you know so there's going to be a lot of interesting things to discuss and, and take a look at and uh, I think from that point of view that'd be something that you're probably going to find very interesting and hopefully the viewers and uh, the people that see the piece that the, the film that we create that um, that uh, is, is going to be on free domain radio on YouTube I should imagine at some point Sorry, I've, I've always said I don't really want people to be too interested in me. Just really focus on the ideas, but I also want to help people to sort of understand. You know, there's there's stage staff, and then there's like staff, and it's not like I'm completely opposite in, in my sort of personal life or anything like that. 
But, uh, you know, Freddie Mercury was the guy who commanded billions on stage. But you don't go over to his house for tea and he screams, we are the champions in your face at full volume. You know, <laughs> it's just this, there's the sort of the stage and then there's the sort of other guy. And there's so hopefully a little bit more of the other guy in this kind of situation. So, all right, listen, yeah, do you mind yeah, if we move yeah. on to the next call? No problem. Nice to, nice to speak with you, Stefan. It's great. Nice to chat with you as always. And um, again, looking forward to Amsterdam. For somebody who asked, you do not have to attend the NextBed conference to come to the uh, meetup. All right. Up next is Andrew R. He writes in and says, I'm currently in the process of telling my family how I feel about our relationship. I'm having trouble. I'm having a difficult time dealing with the guilt that always seems to arise within me after those conversations end. Do you have any thoughts on why it is that I feel so guilty? All right. So what... Uh... Where does the guilt come from? I mean, emotions usually come from an argument, and sometimes that argument occurs too deep in our brains and too early in our experience to to know. But what do you think the argument is that uh, is occurring that would help you sort of bring along this sort of feeling of guilt? That's a tough question, I guess. Um, It comes primarily, I guess, from the confrontations I've had with them. I've confronted my mom four times now in the past, I guess, four or five months. And it always leads to an explosion in anger from my end. And I always end up leaving the conversation, I guess, uh, in anger. And then a week later, um, she'll call me and leave a voice message that, and she acts like nothing happens, you know. She doesn't um, talk about the conversation that we had. She doesn't uh, communicate that she uh, cared about me expressing my feelings to her. And but for some reason, I still feel guilty when she calls me and I don't call her back. All right. Why do you think you get uh, so angry when you're talking with your mom? I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just curious to why you think that is occurring. Yeah, I I totally know why that is. Um, It's her responses to my, basically, when I tell her how I feel about the relationship that we currently have um, and also the relationship we had in the past. I, for the past year or so, I've been really taking self-knowledge pretty seriously and I've been um, digging into my past, digging into my childhood and kind of realizing that a lot of it was pretty traumatizing and when I've confronted her about it and my grandparents too um, I'm just met with dismissal um, complete dismissal actually and that's where my anger comes from I think alright so you have criticisms about how you were raised based on some feelings or experiences of abuse you bring that up and how is it waved away I mean what is the magic wand what are the words that are used to invalidate your experience sure um the first one that comes to my mind is she always says to me, well, you had a good childhood or um, I don't remember any of that or uh, the one that really, really got me. And I'm just as a side note, I'm really considering defooing at this point based on um, these confrontations. Uh, the big one recently was when I confronted her about her meth use. Um right. And she told me that she was experimenting like I was with drugs and alcohol when I was 18. And I couldn't, I was honestly 
I just didn't know what to say, and I eventually did. You just... did you in fact have a child when you were eighteen? No, no. Right. right, right. So, so kind of a a bit different, right? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Um, sorry, did you want to add something else? No, I, I guess I was just thinking how. Just I can't believe I can't believe that she would say something like that, and it's just I'm still in disbelief. I don't know if I'll ever get over that disbelief, but um, why do you, why do you not believe that she would say something like that? I just don't understand how somebody can be so disconnected from their emotions like that. Um, I'm currently in therapy. I'm working with a with therapist, and he's been really helpful and exploring why that might be and it I, it makes a lot of sense that I've, you know she didn't get her childhood needs met and everything so i can understand to a certain degree why she'd have uh she wouldn't be able to um really express those emotions but it just that kind of abuse i just it just i don't know it really well, what was what, what happened that what happened that was abusive just and again you mentioned matthew so i'm not going to be shocked by anything but what sort of stuff are you talking about the big thing, the big thing that I confronted them about was just feeling neglected and feeling as if, um, my thoughts and my desires didn't really come into play in their minds. Um, I didn't feel like I was really asked what I wanted to do with my life or how I was doing, or, you know, I guess, uh, a vivid example is, you know, I would come home from school and I would go into my room. This is middle school, high school. I don't know, maybe earlier. And uh, I would be in my room and my mom would come home maybe 10 minutes after I got home and she would swing. My The bathroom was right by my, my bedroom. So she would swing in there real quick and say hi to me while she went in there. And then she would, went, go, she would go into the kitchen and uh, watch TV for the rest of the night. And that was basically kind of our relationship and still is pretty much. Whenever I see her, so that's not a relationship, right? Absolutely not. No, gotta, gotta, you know, that's avoidance, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's tragic, of course, right? And I'm incredibly sorry for this, but I know actually a lot of people who whose parents don't really want to spend time with them. It's, it's really sad, uh, and it's, it's, you know, very, very difficult as a kid, right? Because you know that it's a, it's a weak bond, and you, it's hard to feel interesting yourself if you know the woman who gave birth to you isn't that isn't really that interested in you. But, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm thinking about defooing. It's like, from what? <laughs> right. No, it's like, you know, like so I've been married for 20 years. My wife and I live in separate houses. We don't have sex. We haven't talked in years, but I'm afraid of ending my marriage. I'm like, ending what? I know. I've thought about that so many times. It's it's popped into my head. You know? I, but for some reason, I still feel like every time she calls or, you know, she sent me an email the other day showing me pictures of a, of a puppy that she's thinking of buying. And this is, this is after I've sent her, um, responses, you know, telling her how I've been feeling, having these confrontations and she doesn't respond to any of it. And then she sends me like a picture of a puppy that she's thinking of buying as if nothing has happened, you know? Sure. Because it's working. Right. It is. I mean, it's, it's working, right? So if she ignores it, so let's sort of break down this a little bit in more detail. Um, does she, does she at least, sort of admit and understand that the Matthews was not optimal parenting. Yeah, I think she would. Or she has. Wait, wait, what do you mean you think she would? (laughs) 
She has. She has admitted that. So she admitted that she was dysfunctional and destructive as a parent during her time of Matthews. Nope. Not, she didn't say it in those words. She said, Okay, no, no, but what words did she say? I mean, that's okay, not going to sure. be exactly the same. She, okay, let's see if I can remember. It was very avoidant. It was very dismissing. She said, uh, you know, I thought I got my life together and I thought I was doing a good job and I guess not. Oh, so basically it's, it's your problem. Like she, she was doing fine and she had her life together, but the fact that you have a problem, uh, the only problem that she has with her behavior is that you have a problem with it, nothing to do with her behavior, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, let me give you some insights into guilt. Okay. Because guilt is, is one of the most powerful emotions in the world, and it is one of the most fascistic emotions in the world. It is also one of the most predatory emotions in the world. It is responsible for more theft than the government and the church combined. It's a very, very huge, huge issue, guilt. Now, I'll tell you what I think guilt is. You can tell me if it makes any sense to you or not. This is not a philosophical argument, right? Just everybody knows. I was trying to differentiate. This is not syllogistic, but uh, I don't think that makes it any less compelling or important. It may make it more important. But uh, I will tell you what guilt is, and then you can tell me if it fits your situation. Sure. Guilt is the feeling that you owe a debt you are not paying. Yeah, that does that does hit home. I feel like I, I mean, if, if I yeah, if I order something online, and then the guy ships it to me and I don't pay him, then I'm I'm not paying a debt that I owe, right? Right. So guilt is the feeling that you owe a debt that you're not paying, and that's what makes us so susceptible to being manipulated by guilt. Because, as I've said for many years, there are no unchosen positive obligations. You did not choose your parents, and you don't owe them. My daughter doesn't owe anything to me. I owe my daughter because I chose to have a child. She doesn't owe me. Now, if I'm good to her, I can make the case that she should be good back to me. But if she's not good back to me, really pretty much the only place I need to look is... In my own behavior. What have I not modeled for my daughter that she is this way inclined? And she is. You know, we, we play Monopoly. She's, she's happy to give me money <laughs> if I'm running low. I mean, she's very, she's very kind, very competitive, but I guess I could look in the mirror and know where that's coming from. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she's, she's very kind. But she does not owe me obedience. She does not owe me respect. She's not, my wife doesn't owe me obedience or respect. I don't owe my wife obedience. Uh, listeners don't owe me money. It's not a contract, right? You earn it. I make the case for it. So guilt is the feeling that we owe a debt that we're not paying. And the best way to exploit people is to create a unilateral obligation. This is a terrible way of putting it. I wish I could make this more poetic and fiery, but this is important to be precise about and not to get carried away by emotion because emotion is really the cause of the problem here. So I'm not going to get all preacher on the mount fiery. I, I really want to be precise on this. 
Okay. The best way to exploit people is to create a unilateral obligation. That unilater- unilateral obligation might be pay your taxes because you breathe, right? Mm-hmm. It might be ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, right? Which is basically saying, ask not how to ride the unicorn, ask how the unicorn can ride you. That's what philosophers hear, right? And if you can create in someone a sense of obligation that is involuntary, obviously one-sided, and universal, then you can crank the money spigot out of them until they fucking croak, right? Right. And so we get this, you know, social contract or people say with the Bundy Ranch, well, you know, Bundy, he owes the government a million dollars, right? Which is uh, based on what? They just basically went in, said this land is ours and started charging him money. By what possible rational standard? Why doesn't he just go to Washington and say, okay, well, I now own the Capitol building. Yeah, I pointed at it. Yeah, I pointed at it. I'm even going to write it down in a nice font. I now own the Capitol building. And they owe me a million dollars in rent. And so, hey, look, like if everyone can just claim ownership and claim money, then society would cease to function, right? Yeah. It's so, kind of, kind of like sorry, a, go ahead. Yeah, it's kind of like an implicit ownership of, of a child or something. Well, yeah, so, so let's get your mom, right? So society creates a number of one-sided obligations, right? You owe Jesus your allegiance because Jesus has the capacity to remove from you a sin that Jesus placed on you, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I am going to paint you an imaginary color in my mind, and then you must pay me $10,000 to have that color washed off. I mean, we, we get that's crazy, right? Right. I'm going to give you an imaginary illness, and then I'm going to cure you from this imaginary illness with an imaginary cure for real money, right? Like, why can't you use imaginary money? Well, there's been little point for that, right? <laughs> little point for that. And so this creation of the feeling of obligation... You used the roads. You went to public schools. You owe the government your taxes. You got a bill, didn't you? <laughs> right? You owe the government your taxes. You may even owe them your life if you're conscripted, right? And the implanting of fake obligation in people's minds is the greatest predatory mechanism the species has. And this is what you're susceptible to, I'm susceptible to it, all but sociopaths, right? (laughs) All but those who lack conscience are susceptible to it, but at least the sociopaths know how powerful it is, right? Right. And so we're constantly told that, you know, motherhood is everything and and they're your parents and and you owe them. They they gave you life, right? Mm -hmm. Like any retard can can screw it. They don't have to understand anything about it. They're not fucking Frankenstein. It's, like, you know, it's not like a, a grim German Gothic castle, 90,000 volts of lightning and maniacal la- cackling laughter, and then you arise out with stitches in your neck. Well, I guess I have stitches in mine, but, but there's no, right? They don't, they don't give you life like it's a gift to give. 
They're not like uh, people creating animatronic Japanese sex robots with massive amounts of twisted engineering expertise, although still more useful than the most of the work that physicists do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I said it. Bitch all you want. So they, they, don't, they don't give you life. They had sex and nature took over, right? I mean, if we say parents gave you life, then we have to award the title of a PhD in biology to single-celled organisms who split into two, right? I mean, it's, right. <laughs> look, they gave each other life, right? But, but that very phrase, they gave you life, they provided for you, they supported you, they, they fed you, they clothed you, they took you to the doctor, is all to create an obligation on the part of the child. Now I owe them something back. And it's terrible. I mean, the moment you create one-sided obligations, you are signaling clearly that you intend to lower your standards. Right? Somebody who wants to use government money for his business is automatically signaling that he wants to lower his standards. Right? Because if he wanted to maintain his standards, he wouldn't be going for government money. So with your mom, you have been programmed, literally programmed, to believe that you owe her something regardless of her behavior, right? This is why people like abstractions, because abstractions don't have behaviors, right? Right. Now, what do we owe our parents? Well, I, I think we owe them what we owe everyone else. We owe them a fair and just evaluation of their behavior, and we owe them uh, honesty. And fundamentally, relationships are based on Emotions, right? If you don't like someone, then you don't like them. It's a tautology, but it's important, right? Right. If, if you find someone boring, if you find someone frustrating, if you're indifferent to someone, if you hate someone, if you, if you don't like that person, that's the relationship. There's not this abstract thing called the relationship that you deny yourself based upon. The moment you start denying yourself in a relationship, it is no longer a relationship. Right? Right. It's like saying there's a band there, but no one shows up. There's no band there. If people are avoiding the stage, there's no band. And if you're avoiding honesty and openness in your relationship, it's not a relationship. It's sort of this mutual avoidance. And so your mom is relying on tens of thousands of years of propaganda to say you owe your mom a response. And uh, I don't... Uh, you know, I've, I've been saying this for years and I've never heard a case that's any different. I mean, <laughs> women make goddamn vows to their husband. You know, my mom made a vow to my dad to be with him until death do they part in sickness and in health for better or for worse. And then in a couple of years, she just divorced his ass. Yeah, that's, that's what my mom did too. You know? Yeah, so your mom divorced your dad, right? And they, they chose each other and made fucking vows to each other, right? And then they're like, no, 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 not for me. And I'm like, okay, well, as I say to my daughter, freedom for you is freedom for me, right? If you have the right to not to, to just say no to stuff you don't want to do, then so do I. If, we're not gonna if you're not going to compromise, I don't have to compromise. And so with my mom, it's like, well, you chose my dad. You made vows to him. I never chose you. I never made any goddamn vows to you. 
I, I was trapped with you. You only felt trapped with my dad after. <laughs> right? They actually had conscious, consciously chosen and spoken obligations to each other, right? They promised to stay together until death did they part in sickness and in health for better or for worse. Right? They actually entered into a contract with each other. Voluntarily entered into a contract with each other for a lifelong union and partnership. And then they said, no, don't want it. So it's, I, I, I've always failed to understand how moms and dads can break agreements with each other that are conscious, explicit, and voluntary, and then somehow expect their children to owe them for unchosen, involuntary relationships. I mean, do you understand that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever? Totally. Yep. It literally is saying that the slave has a higher obligation to respect the property of the owner than the owner has to respect the property of the slave. It is such a mad logical contradiction that to, to, to think, to ponder it, and to try and hold it into your brain is to court insanity or to, to, to absorb culture, which is sort of the same thing. Yeah, uh, just to build on what you're saying, I, I was talking about my situation with a friend of mine uh, a couple weeks ago. And we were trying to figure out why it is that my mom um, denies my reality or my my experience so vehemently, I guess. And my mom is uh, she's she doesn't have any hobbies. She doesn't have any friends. And she's told me on numerous occasions that I'm the only person in her life that matters. And I'm the only like I'm the shiny wow. light. And. I'm everything, right? And well, no, except when you say something that she doesn't like, then you're nothing, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll believe that you're everything to me when she says, "Tell me more about what's bothering you," right? Yeah. But sorry, go on. Yeah. Um, so when, so when I confront her about the fact that her one and only actually does have issues and actually is broken in many ways and he's trying to rebuild himself, then that is terrifying to her because that means she then has nothing in her life. I'm sorry, I just missed that. Who, who was broken and trying oh, to rebuild himself? Oh, sorry, myself. So her, um, her son, the, the one and only, the shining light in her life, that only thing that matters isn't perfect or isn't what she thinks uh, he is, then that's... No, no, too that's, that's too unprecise. No, no, that's too unprecise. Isn't perfect. I mean, I, I don't even know what that means, but it's, it, that's a defense for your, for your mom, right? So what is it precisely that your mother is having trouble with in what you're doing? What does she not like? It's not not being perfect because, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. What, what is it? Well, what causes trouble in your relationship with your mom? When I, when I don't see her or when I don't want to call her back or when I don't want to talk to her, when I don't have interest, don't show interest in wanting to be with her. Okay. So, and you're, you're being honest about that. You don't have this burning desire to see her, which you're crushing, right? No. Like an elephant sitting on an egg, right? Okay. 
Okay, so when you are honest in your lack of desire to see her, that's when she has a problem with you. What about when you do go and see her and you talk about your true thoughts and feelings about your relationship? How does she react? Yeah. She's just, it's another thing that makes me so angry. It's that she, you know, the four times that I've uh, really sat down and talked to her, she leaves the TV on halfway through the conversations. She doesn't really look at me. She'll, you know, walk up and walk around the, the house. And oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me just tell you, I, I've never met you before. I don't have the TV on. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> I am walking around. Uh, that's because my shows go better when I walk around and because I don't want to sit. Sitting is like smoking, right? <laughs> so, uh, But I am you know, really trying to listen as hard as I can to everything that you say, and I don't even know you. So I'm sorry that you've had that experience of trying to talk about something that's really important to you emotionally with your mom and finding yourself competing with a fucking tampon commercial for her attention. I'm very sorry about that. Thank you. That's terrible. All right, so when you do something that she doesn't like, then that's a problem for, for her, right? Right. So is it, not, is it unfair to say that you exist to serve her needs, that your value is serving her needs? And if you do something which doesn't serve her needs, that's a problem. If you have needs of yours which contradict the needs of hers, that's a big problem. No. I mean, that's, that'd be ridiculous. Sorry, um, that would be a ridiculous thing to say or that – because I, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. Yeah, I'm sorry, saying yeah. would it be strange to say that if you have needs that contradict your mother's needs, there's a huge problem? Oh, uh, n no, <laughs> if I understand what you're saying. I, I, okay, I so it, it is it's a fair thing to say that the biggest problems are when you have needs that contradict your mother's needs. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yep, yep. And her response to a divergence of needs or an opposition of needs is what? Attack. She attacks me in many ways. Um, I feel like she puts the blame on me. Um, she, Not quite a feeling, but okay. Uh, <laughs> it's, that's that's okay. really a, a, yeah. an evaluation. But uh, uh, Okay, feel, so yeah, so what do you feel when you're thinking, when you're driving over feel, or going over to talk to her? Oh, I feel just full of anxiety. I feel just, I feel literally terrified. And I really don't know why I'm so scared because I feel like I have an idea of what's going to happen. So I'm, but I, yeah, I am just full of anxiety and just scared. Right. <clears throat> and why do you think that is? You know, I, I've talked a lot about this with my therapist and I've, I, my ideal, my ideal outcome would be to have an amazing relationship with my family, but huh. I, I just don't see it happening. And I feel like the reason why I'm so scared when I attempt to make any kind of contact with them is because, um, I'm realizing or it's 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 solidification that it's not going to happen or it's you know it's I guess maybe it's it's uh really seeing them for who they are and coming to terms with that right and I'm I'm incredibly sorry I mean of course we all want amazing relationships with our family 
Of course we do. I mean, how great does that make life? How great does it make life to have a fun, loving, intimate, warm, wise, and happy relationship with your parents? I mean, talk about winning the lottery. Oh, my God. What an amazing, amazing boost that is to your life. And it is absolutely tragic when quite the opposite is occurring. I will tell you, and I'm sure this is not news to you, you cannot have as your goal an amazing relationship with your family. That's kind of megalomaniacal, right? It's literally like saying my goal tomorrow is to have a relationship with it not being windy, right? You, You can't control that. You, you cannot control your relationship with your parents. You cannot have as your goal a great relationship with your parents because you can't control what they're going to do. And, and it's, it's taking a page from their template and saying they must serve my needs to have a great relationship. Right? A valid obligations of what you need to compare guilt to. To, to understand whether your guilt is something that is serving justice or serving exploitation, right? We want our emotions to serve justice, not evil, right? We want them to serve virtue, not vice. And so to me, there are a couple of, because pe- people are always trying to impose unchosen positive obligations on me. I mean, as they are with everyone, I don't think I'm particularly singled out, but people are always trying to, uh, to do that, right? And so what I do is I say, okay, well, I know what a valid obligation looks like. So a valid obligation has a couple of key characteristics. One, it's initiated by you, right? So we'll take the simple example of ordering a book from some guy through, I think, Ashley Madison is where you get your books. So you order a book from some guy, you, you seek out the book, you seek out the guy, and you initiate the interaction. Is that the case with parents? Of course not. Now, the second thing is, is that you then receive the value that you ask for. So you order a book, and you get the book. And you only receive the book on the obligation or on the understanding that you're going to pay. In other words, if he knew you weren't going to pay, he wouldn't send you the book. Right? So you only get the book because you have promised to pay. Does that... Uh, fit with the parental relationship? I don't really think so. And then the third thing is, you keep the book and you refuse to pay. But then you have some reason to feel guilty, right? You've initiated an interaction, you have received and kept the value, which you only received and were able to keep because you promised a value in return, and now you are failing to provide that value. So that is a breach of contract, and that is something to feel guilty about. Now, let's compare that guilt and obligation to a situation of parents. No, before we do that, let's do spouses, right? So you voluntarily go out and you find a man, woman, or Thai-based ladyboy, I don't know, to get married to. And then you, you, you choose that person, you, you choose to get married, and you make all of these verbal contracts with the person to stay together forever, blah 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 so there you have voluntarily a, a sought out and, and entered into a contract. Now, it's a little bit different in that it's not directly pay or whatever it is, right? 
But if you say uh, to, to your wife, you have the kids and I will be the income earner, and then you don't give her any money, then, of course, you've, you've broken contract and so on, right? But um, with regards to parents, you don't voluntarily seek out them as parents. You don't enter into the relationship voluntarily. And you do receive some value from the parents, but because parents don't give you that value on the explicit understanding that you owe them your time and money and resources for the rest of your life, then it's not a valid contract. Like, I don't think that many parents say to their kids, I will give you some food, but only if you promise to answer all my calls as an adult, whether you want to or not, within 24 hours. I will take you to the doctor, but you have to promise to come to church with me for the rest of my life, right? I will educate you, but in return, you must promise me that you will come and spend Christmas with me until I'm dead, right? That would be a kind of an insane thing to hear from a parent because parents always say, well, we're selflessly devoted to our children. We give and we give and we give, right? Parents don't say, we give and then you owe me. Because then it's not giving. Charity must be freely given. If charity is given with the expectation of return, then it is no longer charity. If I say to a guy, I'm going to give you 20 bucks, and then I walk on my way, that's charity. If I say, I will give you 20 bucks if you perform all the songs that Justin Bieber has ever sung, then it's not charity I am buying him, buying his time. I, he's now an employee, right? And this is the Gordian knot that is so hard to untangle when it comes to parental obligations. Were they generous, in which case for them to say, you now owe me, is invalid, right? Here's 20 bucks, it's charity. Now, tomorrow, you owe me $25. Well, that's a loan. It's not charity, so if parents are genuinely being, quote, selfless when it comes to giving stuff to their kids, then they should not expect anything in return. If they do expect something in return, then it is a relationship that is, I mean, it's not really contractual because you don't really have any choice, right? It's like me locking a guy in my basement and saying, well, you owe me 50 bucks for a sandwich. Guy's starving to death. It's like, okay, you try and enforce that contract when you go to court, Right. Well, he signed something saying he was going to give me 50 bucks for a sandwich. It's like, dude, you locked him in your basement, for God's sakes. How is he supposed to, right? He's got no choice. <laughs> so you can't impose contracts on kids. Now, if parents are generous, then they should expect nothing in return because that's called generosity, selflessness, charity, whatever you want to call it. That's a donation, right? But if they are buying you in the future by being generous with you, then they have to provide a level of service, right? And even then, it's, pretty, it's really shaky as to whether it's any kind of valid contract. But if we accept that you owe your parents something because they provided you parenting services when you were younger, even though they had a voluntary monopoly, as we talked about earlier in the show, parents can give up their kids anytime they want. So you, when, you, when you hold on to your kids, you are imposing 
and in a, a voluntary monopoly over them. You are holding a voluntary monopoly over them. So either they're doing it selflessly, in which case you don't owe them anything. You may feel generosity back in return. I think that's obviously fine, right? Generosity tends to beget generosity among the virtuous. It tends to beget exploitation among the non-virtuous or the evil. But if they are buying your time with their prior generosity, then you damn well can expect a level of service from them. Right. Right? And what level of service did you receive? I didn't receive any. Yeah, I mean, you were fed, right? Right. I assume you were provided some level of medical attention, some dentistry, you know, whatever, right? So you were provided, you know, stay alive basics and stay healthy basics, right? Right. So you get that in prison, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just, you really have to be strict with your sense of uh, obligation. And the reality is that you don't have any sense of obligation whatsoever. I, I guarantee you that. And you've already told me that pretty explicitly. You don't have any sense of obligation. It is not out of guilt that you want to call your mother. Why do you feel so strongly that you should call your mother? <sighs> what happens when you don't comply? I get attacked. I get exactly. Exactly. You, you calling your mother is out of fear of attack. It's not out of any obligation. It's not guilt. It's fear. Yeah. Guilt is easier to deal with. But, but fear is, is the more essential emotion. Again, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't want to tell you what your experience is, but... No, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get attacked, so I will call her to stave off the attack. Yeah. Or as one I... woman I said, you know, she said, well, I can pull that elastic band with my parents for a while, but after a couple of weeks, it feels like it's going to snap, and therefore I have to call them, right? It wasn't because she wanted to talk to them. It's just, while well, I can only stand so much, and then, uh, right? Right. The fear rises. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, yep, that makes sense. Because uh, the, the times at which I felt the most fear were the times that I confronted my parents. Explicitly, like, confronted them about everything that was on my mind and how I felt. And that was when they, yeah, this, that's when they attacked me emotionally. Yeah, and so I said earlier, right, men are terrified of women. And without, this is why this patriarchy thing is, oh, it's so absurd. I mean, if there was a patriarchy, how the hell do little boys get hit 18 times a week or 20 times a week or 30 times a week by their moms all the time? Fucking patriarchy. Jesus Christ. But yeah, men, men are terrified of, of women and you're, you're scared of your mom. Because she doesn't admit fault and she's done wrong. People who have done wrong and don't admit fault must forever find someone else to nail on the cross of their own guilty conscience. Right? There's no more dangerous person than the person who's done wrong and will not admit fault. Because they'll find someone to blame. They will find someone to blame. And I can guarantee you the person they will find to blame 
is the most sensitive and empathetic person around. Right. Bad conscience means fuck the good people. Because they're susceptible to feelings of obligation. They're susceptible to feelings of justice. Right? Mm -hmm. And so people who don't admit fault will find the most sensitive and virtuous person around them and screw them up. Do you think evil people feel a sense of obligation? <laughs> no. no, I mean, Hitler signs a, ah, there'll be peace in our time, I promise. He doesn't feel any sense of obligation. It's just a strategy to give him time to arm better. And I, Czechoslovakia and Austria and Poland and, right, Russia. So, if you are a virtuous person and you are around people who don't take responsibility for the wrongs that they've done, you are squarely in their lasers. You are in their crosshairs. And that, those bullets will never stop flying until they accept and admit responsibility and fault for the wrongs that they've done. And this is why bad people need good people around them. If bad people are only surrounded by bad people, they have no place with which to discharge their bad conscience, right? It's like right. you've got to throw up and you're in a very beautiful house with very beautiful rugs. You're running around the room trying to find a garbage can, right? Or a toilet, so you, or at least a sink, so you can throw up and not screw up the decor, right? Well, this is what bad people are like. They've got this conscience that makes them want to throw up, but they can only throw up into the garbage can of a good person. And so they're running around frantically looking for good people to vomit into. Is that because the, the, the virtuous person or the, the good person um, has their garbage can open, I guess, in the sense of they're well, vulnerable? It's because and... if somebody says, like if somebody says to you, um, you, you owe me something, a bad person will say, well, does it, is it beneficial for me to, to owe you anything? Will I get? No. Then fuck, I don't care what you're saying. You're just flapping your mouth hole. You might as well be speaking Swahili, Swahili or making distant peregrine falcon noises as you dive at Mach 12 for a rabbit, right? Right. They don't, they don't, they don't feel, they don't care about obligations. It's just a strategy, right? Hitler says to Chamberlain, or Hitler says to himself about Chamberlain, well, this old fool wants me to sign this piece of paper promising peace in our time. Does that benefit me? Yeah. Do I have to stick to it? Fuck no. It's ridiculous, right? He's nice when he wants to be. He berates people when he wants, when it's to his advantage. Everything is just to his advantage. And so the reason that bad people rip wide the jaws of good people and vomit down them is because good people take obligations seriously. And also good people have self-doubt, right? You doubt your motives and your relationship with your mother and whether you're doing the right thing and so on, right? Has she ever expressed any doubt about her behavior? Never. No. No. So in this way, when bad people say that they need you, they're actually kind of telling the truth, right? They need you to disgorge their bad conscience into you, to make you suffer for the wrongs that they have done. And this is why bad people will, ha will try and, like you try and get away, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, it's your choice, but you work that out with your therapist, but let's say you decide to defoo, right? You try to get away from your mom and this woman who watches TV while you're over, talking about your, your heart's needs and your historical emotions and the depths of your 
experiences and so on, she's got half an eye on the TV, right? So this woman who is indifferent to your presence may become completely unstabilized by your absence because now she's got no one to vomit into. Yeah. Right? And this is one reason why bad people, both male and female, often go into serial relationships because they need someone to vomit into, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this is why strictness around obligation is essential to protect virtue. You have to be very strict with sympathy. You have to be very strict with obligation. There are people in this world I would do anything for. And there are people in this world I will do nothing for. I have to be very strict. I'd like to be nice to everyone. I would love to be nice to everyone. But the recognition that there are people in the world means cool. Pet the tiger, you might lose an eye. So I posted something on uh, Facebook because last year, um, after a year of misdiagnosis and bad diagnosis, I finally flew to the States and uh, was, uh, had a, a, a lump removed from my throat, which turned out to be cancerous. So I went through uh, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, which was uh, tough. And I had people who'd come over to my house, eaten from my table. And some of them had been donators, right? It's not like I was, they were just parasites or anything like that. But people, we'd, you know, we'd shared laughs, we'd shared giggles, we'd shared tears, we'd, we'd been quite close. And what happened? Well, I got sick. And uh, I publicly announced that I was sick. Everybody was talking about it who had anything to do with the show. And maybe two or three of those people even bothered to write an email to say, best of luck, you know, if you want to talk or, you know, I'm really busy, but best of luck with all of this. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to be okay. It must be scary. You know, you just became a father a couple of years ago and now you're facing a life-threatening disease and so on, right? And some of those people have been sort of floating back into my life wanting favors. Can you, I need advice. I want to call. I need something from you. Can you give me some feedback? I need your wisdom. Can I have some money? And it reminds me of that time, of how difficult it is to face an illness and have people who you thought were in the friend zone not bother to do or say anything. Right. And some people said nice stuff, and then, you know, one guy said, oh, listen, I'm going to keep my subscription going no matter what. Even if you die, I'm going to keep it going for your wife and kids. A couple of months later, what happened, Mike? Cancellation. Canceled his subscription. Right? Wow. With no reference to his earlier commitment, right? No. And uh, so, yeah, so I posted something on Facebook because I'm just, I got, I got angry at people constantly floating back in my life as if they were there during the darkest time of my adult life and just asking me for favors as if nothing had happened. So, um, yeah, so I, I wrote and uh, I said, hey, let me, let me make this easier on a lot of people. If you were my friend and you ate at my table and you didn't bother calling or writing me with any words of support and encouragement when I was battling cancer, 
and you now contact me wanting a favor or money or time or advice, let me spell it out for you. You are as gone from my life as my tumor, except my tumor has a chance of coming back. And these are just standards you have to have. You have to be strict. With your sympathies, you have to be strict with your resources. You have to say no where there's no reciprocity, right? Yeah. Or at least if you say yes, you have to say yes with full knowledge, right? So if you say to yourself, look, I'm terrified of my mom, so I'm going to call her so that she doesn't attack me, right? Well, that's fine. That's a choice you can make, right? I just, re I, all I want is to give people headlights, right? <laughs> that's all I want. I just, I, I, that's why I don't tell people what to do other than seek the truth, pursue the truth. If you call, you calling your mother obligation or I'm guilty because she was my mom and she gave me all these, well, then you're not calling, thing by, calling something by its proper name, right? And you just, you can't drive at night with no street lights, with no headlights. It's not like a racetrack that lights are always on. Right? <laughs> so if you don't have much of a relationship with your mom, but you're frightened of her attacks, then you can say to yourself, well, I've decided to call my mom because I'm terrified of her attacking me if I don't. Okay. Well, that's fair. But the honesty is, is key, right? Does that, does that help at all? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I do feel like I have to be more strict. Um, I feel like that's kind of a tendency I have in my life in general is I'm, I'm too forgiving in a sense. I, I guess I'm, I have a I have a problem saying no. I'll be honest. Sometimes, you know, and I feel like that's. Well, no. See, see, you you're not you're not talking about it accurately again, which I understand, right? But you're basically saying I have a problem saying no, which is not true. It's not accurate, right? What happened was, if your mother attacks you for differences of opinion, for you setting limits with her then it's not like you just have some problem saying no. Like just some, wow, it's weird, you know, I just, I have a problem, right? It's a natural scar tissue from the attack, right? So if you say, I was, I have an aversion to saying no because I was attacked for saying no. Right, right. And then, then that's more accurate. You don't want to make something that is environmentally caused a personal issue without context. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Like if I, let's say I'm spontaneously developing bruises on my shins, that's bad, right? That could be something very serious, right? Mm -hmm. But if I keep walking into tables, <laughs> right, <laughs> then, then at least my bruises have an environmental explanation and I don't need to go to a hematologist and say, what the hell is wrong with my spontaneous bruises, right? So if you have an external cause to your habits, then that makes sense, right? Totally. Mm -hmm. And so you were attacked for saying no and setting limits, and so you're scared of saying no and setting limits. Of course, right? I mean, if you're repeatedly attacked by tigers, you don't say, I have this weird problem with tigers. It's just so... It's so... Uh, you know, because I haven't... Uh, 
been looking at this for too long. It's only been a couple of years now that I've been really looking at my parents, my family, myself. So it's really painful, I guess, to kind of look or realize that I was attacked my whole life, probably. Right. Right. It is. It is very painful, and uh, it is uh, tragically. Uh, it is tragically the only way to stop it from continuing. Yeah. Right. If if you keep getting mauled by tigers and you feel that it's somehow your fault or if you approach them in the right way or if you do something different, then you're not going to get mauled. All that does is keep you going back into the tiger's den, right? Right. If you feel it's somehow your fault, the tigers are good, but you're just doing something wrong, you're provoking them, you're antagonizing them, and you have to have a relationship with the tigers, well, the tigers want you to believe that because you're a tasty snack, right? So it's just accepting, wow, you know, I've known these tigers for a quarter of a century, and every time I go into their cage as me, rather than as a mirror for them, they maul me, well... Sometimes tigers are just assholes. It's not your job. It's not your job to fix their DNA. It's not your job to fix their brain development. It's not your job to rewire someone else's brain. If they want to try it, it's their job. You can't reach in between their ears and fix their wires. There's no countdown timer, cut the yellow fuse and hope the bomb doesn't go off. You cannot rewire other people's brains. You cannot fix people's brains. You cannot fix people's capacity for empathy. You cannot make their arms regrow if they've been bitten off. You cannot make their eyes regrow if they've been gouged out. You cannot fix people's brains. Dear God, people have been trying to do this for thousands of years, and they've invoked gods and devils and demons and biochemical warfare known as SSRIs. They have tried uh, threatening people with hell. They have tried everything that they can think of. They've tried LSD. They've tried uh, dousing people in ice water, they have tried uh, boiling uh, them in warm water, uh, they have tried LSD, they've tried just about everything that you can uh, think of to get people to regrow empathy or to be better. They can't even figure out how to stop people from going back to prison, for heaven's sakes. So you can't fix people's brains. You have to accept them for who they are. If they have branched off into predator land, into manipulation land, into narcissism land, into sociopath land... We may sympathize, we may empathize, but we cannot fix and we cannot change their brains. We cannot change their brains. I don't know if they can or not. doesn't really matter, but we sure as hell can't. So it's really important to accept people for who they are, to not rely on their fantasies of who they are, to not rely on whatever brain bombs they planted in you, to kick resources their way, to be who you are, to accept who they are, and to deal with the empirical evidence of who they have been low these many years. So I hope that helps. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Have yourselves a wonderful week, of course. And if you would like to help out the show, fdrurl.com forward slash donate is the way to do it. I hugely appreciate it. And uh, I will talk to you soon.